The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Yardley. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So you can hear me? I'm so technically um, unevolved. It's terrifying. Oh, come on. No, really, I'm in, I'm on the, in the office. I am known as a, sli- a cyber black hole. I walk by the printer and it just goes... You know, my wife is exactly the same way. <laughs> you know, her, her reaction to anything that doesn't work is, it hates me. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and with my wife, funnily enough, we had this thing where we concluded she's got a magnetic plate in her forehead because every time she enters a room, all the technology dies. I have a magnetic plate in my um, neck. Is it literally? Yeah, actually, it broke my neck, so they put a plate and, like, six pins in there. How did that happen? Uh, I fell down a flight of stairs. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Yeah, it's it's like a quad. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast. With Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guests, Sting. Small town dicks. I'm glad you gave me that line. Uh, it's not It's not a podcast about the boyfriend you left behind after moving to the big city. Yardley Smith of The Simpsons and Zibby Allen of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. dropped by the GNB studio to talk about season four of their podcast. No whammies at the Grammys. Actually, there were plenty of whammies because if you know anything about the game show. But anyway, uh, but plenty of talk about how the music industry's night on TV is past its prime time. You know, you could write these headlines. I probably should. <laughs> and now. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Everybody seems to have a podcast these days, and if you want to make it big in the podcasting world, you have to have a unique hook that draws listeners back time and time again. Okay, this is the picture. Johnny's being hurt. We gotta leave him here, honey. We gotta. He won't talk. I promise you that. Will you, Johnny? is a true crime podcast hosted by a pair of Hollywood heavyweights that's entering its fourth season. Joining us now is Zibby Allen, also known as Lieutenant Evans from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She was a regular on Grey's Anatomy, alongside podcast co-host Yardley Smith from some animated show no one's ever heard of before. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Where do you guys find time to do a podcast? I mean... We have hard a hard enough time fitting everything into our schedules. I can't even imagine how you guys do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a joke, actually, that the podcast definitely could be a full-time job for all of us. Um, but it's not anybody's full-time job because we all have about nine jobs. Uh, but you know how it is when you really love something. It is, you just find the time. And, and Zibby and I... Um, 
we're so well matched in this regard that we we're real grinders and we really respond to a deadline. So if it needs to get done, then we just do it. We just stay up all night and do it. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. I, I, I'm in that similar sort of world in, in media. And I think, Alan, you're the same way. Oh, yeah. If you need one hour to accomplish something and you've been given two weeks to do that task, you will work on it one hour <laughs> before it's due. That's me. I relate to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is not accurate, Kitty. That is not accurate. So what is it about the true crime genre that appeals to you? I think it's fair to say, right, Yardley, we both love true crime. It's fascinating, um, I think, to a lot of people. Why we ended up doing a true crime podcast actually was sort of, um, well, it just happened because we're friends with two detectives, De Detective Dan and Detective Dave, who happen to be identical twin brothers as well. And so anytime we'd all get together, um, our dinners would always just inevitably turn into Yardley and myself asking them to tell us another crazy story from their jobs. And after so many of these dinners, we just all looked at each other and said, these are such great stories. This should be a podcast. And so um, we knew we had uh, content that already fit into an already existing sort of subculture of true crime fanatics. Um, but... Uh, but what is fascinating, I think, to both of us about true crime, and Yardley, you should give your own sort of input on this as well, is that um, these stories are so extreme, and it's really hard to wrap our minds around how uh, these people can treat each other so uh, terribly. And what's fascinating to me is that this stuff is happening not, you know, in another city far, far away from us. We feature true crime stories that happen in small towns across America. And so this stuff is happening sort of next door, not to creep everybody out, but like, you know, and I always say, especially after doing this, now we're heading into season four, um, I'm struck by how it feels on some level, like we're all kind of anywhere from three to 10 choices away from being caught up in all kinds of these types of stories. And so I think my fascination lies in trying to place myself inside of that. We're also, sorry, I'm talking so much, but I'm, we're also so um, fascinated by what it's like to be the men and women in law enforcement who face the worst of humanity day in and day out and what that does to them. And so our podcast really focuses on, on that aspect of an investigation. It's true. For me, um, I think my fascination with true crime really boils down to way back in the day. I was such a good kid growing up like that. That is how one of the ways Lisa Simpson and I are actually very much alike. Um, and so back, you know, in grade school, I was like, who are these kids who are willing to play hooky? Cause I would never break the rules. And then of course, as you get older, sometimes the gap grows much wider. And, and my theory is, or one of my interests is, is that, Society can't function without a, um, a measure of trust. If we don't all more or less adhere to the same values and sort of rules, the train comes off the tracks. So, for instance, if you're crossing the street, you trust that the car that stopped at the red isn't going to start up while you're in the middle of the cross crosswalk and run you over. Um, but when that happens, I also want to know that there's a force larger than myself 
that is willing and able to put the train back on the tracks. I identify with this podcast in a very personal way. I grew up in a small town in Western Canada, about 2,500 people, and uh, friends of my parents had a son who was murdered on his way back from public skating one night. And they didn't find his body until years later. And it was, uh, they found it in, a, in, a, in an abandoned quarry, in a, in a pond in an abandoned quarry. And it was years before they actually found out who did it. And again, there's that idea that sort of like the original Twin Peaks idea that it looks like a normal sort of place. And it looks like everybody is God-fearing uh, church-going folk. But there is, in some of these places, in many of these places, evil lurking in the hearts of men and women. Yeah, it's one of the things I, that we are fascinated by and we sort of wanted to shine a light on is that these, this big-time crime is happening in small-town USA everywhere and with slightly less frequency, but the same level of depravity and complete lack of respect um, and uh, reverence for human life. Tell me, though, about true crime stories in radio, because they have a long intertwined history among the most successful radio plays at the dawn of that technology's era were being glued to the Victrola listening to true crime. You know, does theater of the mind play into this when you think about the particular topics? I would say most certainly. I mean, what's amazing about radio is that you're really let theater of the mind is a perfect way to put it, right? Because you're really left to fill in the visuals as you're taking in this story. And I think um, Yardley and I both have developed a deep reverence for what goes into curating um, a story that's you're limited to audio only. Um, which is why, you know, we were a fairly heavily edited podcast in that we don't just turn on the mics and let people run. We want to frame this story um, in a way that it feels like you're experiencing it as the listener rather intimately. It's like we want everyone to feel like you're sitting around a table like we very much were with Detectives Dan and Dave listening to these stories and taking them in um, by the people who were right there at the center of it. Um, and I think that's the benefit of um, our particular platform and these stories. I, mean, I think we get to really tell them in a really um, unique and intimate way. Well, it all started, I guess, with Serial. And then there are uh, podcasts like um, Jason Flom's podcast. Do you know his? I don't think so. It's called Wrongful Conviction. Oh, yes, I've heard. I've heard it's wonderful. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And it's it's also very good. So the true crime stuff is absolutely, utterly fascinating. And uh, if you look on iTunes or actually any other on-demand podcast platform, the true crime stuff is the stuff that does the best. Yeah. Well, tell us about Dave and, and Dan, your, 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 your detectives, who you, first of all, they're supposed to be anonymous, but you've admitted not only are they what their names are, but that they're also twins. I, I think that the likelihood, I, I don't think you need to be a gumshoe to be able to hunt down who those two guys are. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. I mean, true. Listen, Google, uh, for many reasons, is our friend and our foe. Um, we do, however, in the recording of all of our episodes and with our guests and with the victims, we change all the names. We never give specific locations. And we even ask in our opening credits that while some of our listeners 
may recognize some of these cases, we hope that you'll join us in um, protecting the true identities of those involved to protect the victims. And um, so, and our point was, this isn't really about, this, this isn't about um, salacious true crime. This really is about the extraordinary police work that's being done in order for justice to be served and how many pieces have to fall into place precisely in order for that to actually happen. And um, so, yes, you know, Dan and Dave being identical twins and both detectives mm -hmm. uh, is a rarity. Um, we will never out them. Uh, sometimes our guests out themselves because they're so excited to be on the podcast, but you'll never hear it from us. <laughs> they're kind of like... They're kind of like the property brothers of of uh, detective work. Uh, that's a first. I haven't heard that one yet, but you're not you're not entirely wrong. <laughs> I bet they would love that comparison. Yeah, yeah. Those those are handsome guys there. So as are Dan and Dave, by the way. <laughs> uh, they feel like the Hardy Boys. Oh, good one. Yes. How did you come? How, how did you come across meeting these, you know, small town detectives mm. when you're big shot Hollywood types? Oh, you know, it's a um, great question. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, friends of friends, uh, and then I will say, having never really spent any time with a detective prior to spending time with Dan and Dave. Um, they are as fascinating to Zibby and I as big time Hollywood types as any celebrity because their lives are so different and so extraordinary just on a day to day. Like their Wednesday is more interesting than my ever any day. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think, and once you get to know them, they're so down to earth and once there's what was funny, actually, is that there is a little bit of um, they're suspicious of people who are interested in them because part of their job is to make sure that they don't give anything away, particularly when they're interviewing a suspect. So when, you know, Zibby and I come up and say, hey, oh, my God, we can't believe you do what you do. And then we want to know all about it. They're like, uh huh. Yeah. OK. Wouldn't you say, Kitty? Totally. We um, and we do this all the time. You know, we'll we'll sit there and we'll just. I mean, it doesn't matter if the microphones are on or not. We're always we're just pummeling with them with questions nonstop. Um, and <laughs> but in reverse, they'll they'll you know they're totally fascinated by what we do, which is so boring. I mean, Kitty and I, Yard, we call each other Kitty in case you haven't noticed. But Yardley <laughs> and I, we've been friends for over a decade, and we almost never talk about work. In fact, we did a mini sode though uh, called On the Record, which is on our website. Website. And it's just a fun little episode that a short episode we recorded in between seasons where detectives Dan and Dave sort of play, we play our own version of ask me anything. And they, it's sort of a crossfire examination. They ask us questions about what it's like to be in Hollywood. And we ask them more questions about what it's like to be detectives. It's a, it was a really fun day. <laughs> it was really fun. Let's go back to some of the stuff that they have told you. Give us a, give us an example of an exciting small town true crime story. Oh man, alive! Just just to to hook people into the podcast. Well, I mean, gosh, Kitty, there's so. I mean, the first episode that comes to mind is Ten Below, mm -hmm. which is season two. That is season one, I believe. So that's a, a which you find out actually in the first six minutes. So it's it's pretty fantastic story. Even beyond that, it's a dead body in a freezer. Good way to start. Uh, more than one. 
Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, that's your Wednesday. What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh, clearly when it came to naming the podcast, Small Town Gumshoes was taken. Dicks had nothing to do with the double entendre, I'm sure. Well, you know what's funny is it, it, at first it sort of almost did because what people don't know if they've listened to our podcast is that Dan and Dave are incredibly funny and witty. Um, and so, and Gallo's humor is one way of just coping with what they deal with day in and day out. And it's appropriate within their agency and with their friends. But um, so our original concept for the show was that we just put both uh, brothers on a microphone at a bar at the end of their work week, and we'd let them talk about their cases. And we figured that that would also include a lot of their wit. But very quickly, we figured out that the stories are just far too heavy and far too dark, and it would have been irreverent. They just didn't match with the, with the, the, the funny and the, and the, the context um, just didn't work. So Dix was always the throwback to detectives, um, and the name did have a little bit of funny to us at first, but we were stuck with the name, and we changed the uh, – and we, we quite like our name, you know, but um, it did start with a little bit of a wink and a nod at first. You know, a nod to the noir slang for detectives back in 1940s. Right. (laughs) Now you're on the trolley. (laughs) (laughs) No. Gallo's humor, though, is is something that's not exclusive to policing. You know, even in radio, you know, after 30 years in television news, there are like you would not want anyone to go through my inbox for all of Mm -hmm. the email smartass and snarkery that would go back and forth. Uh, And I I can imagine it's a a tightrope walk for you guys, particularly since you point out that you do a lot of editing of this show. It's it's I can imagine you treat the audio editing almost like word processing. Um, Yes, Yes. we you know, we are. (laughs) It sounds like two people who don't do the actual editing. (laughs) Oh, we do. Actually, though, Uh, Yardley and I both do. Yeah. No, we both edit on paper. So Zibi does the she's she takes the macro, the whole recording and shapes it into the first incarnation of the episode, and then I do a pass. And then we have two actual editors who work on Pro Tools and and implement the notes that we've written out on paper. Um, But we, there is a, um, I'm sorry, what's your question? I forgot the question. (laughs) Well, it's about sort of like, you know, (laughs) <laughs> between the gallows humor and also the fact that we're interviewing, um, you know, detectives and their, their job, their day job is not storytelling. And so while they know how to te- a lot of them just, we all sort of innately know how to tell a good story. We do find that once we get to the edit process, it's less about, um, uh, editing out words or, uh, what's that word? I'm uh, censorship. It's more about just, Oh, we're going to take this chunk of the story and put it in the middle or toward the end so that we don't know who did it so quickly. Um, but you know, everyone that we've interviewed across the board are speak about all of their cases, their suspects and their victims. Um, everyone involved with such integrity, um, and respect that we don't do any real censoring, to be honest. Yeah, we always say it's um, it, it is more about if they like to be said if they, you know, blew the ending in the first four minutes, we just move it to the actual end um, so that the listener stays engaged. And it is as though you have a thousand piece puzzle. You turn it out onto the table. Now you have all the pieces. We just have to fit them together. But we never actually. 
we never do anything to change the story. Uh, we really just want, if you don't have the advent of being in the room and the advent of seeing somebody's body language, then we want to make sure that if it's just audio, you can follow it easily and you want to come back. Alan? He's stunned. We stunned him into <laughs> silence. No, no. Uh, what, what, uh, here, here, here's a question. Okay. A lot of podcasts are now being optioned for things like TV series and movies. Could you see this happening with yours? And connect us to somebody so that we could do it too? <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to be something that's, um, that ha you know, ev everyone's all about intellectual property these days, which makes sense. I mean, we're looking for new, interesting stories that we haven't seen a million times already. Um, and true crime is so ripe for it because there's almost always a beginning, middle, and an end, you know. Um, even if you don't find out who did it, there's still some sort of like, you know, that's just your cliffhanger. Um, so there's sort of an innate adaptation opportunity. And so we, we've talked about it. We've thought about it. Our hands are really full with this podcast. So we're just taking it one day at a time. But um, there's certainly interest and we've wrapped our minds around it a bunch. Let me ask you one other question. Um, and it's a bit indelicate, but everybody in the podcast world is trying to figure out how to monetize what they're doing. Are you making any money off this? Nope. Oh, great. If you guys aren't making any money off this, what the <laughs> hell hope do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me let me clarify that we are making money, but we're not making a profit. Okay, there you go. Thank you. All right. Since Alan opened the door to talking shop, uh, Yardley, let me throw this particular one at you, uh, um, and uh, it's tied back to your other day job. Mm. Your voice is your instrument, as it is for Zibby, as it is for Alan, as it is for me. Um, I, I haven't read anywhere anything that helps me understand why on The Simpsons you do one voice. Was there a specific decision that was made at some point by you or by somebody else that said, this is the character I'm doing, this is the focus? Yes, uh, it wasn't a decision made by me, actually. It was probably, oh, I don't know. 15, 17 years ago, um, our showrunner at the time, and I think it was, so Al Jean, who is our showrunner now and has been for the last, I think, 15 years, he was also our showrunner with his writing partner at the time, Mike Reese, at the very beginning of the show. Then they left for about four or five years, and then he came back. So when he returned, um, at some point, I heard in a recording session while we were doing uh, a crowd scene with kids and then later with grown-ups, and we all, as actors, we all just chip in for the Walla, right? And then they also hold separate Walla sessions. For listeners who don't know that, they like gather actors together to do all the- Rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Peas and carrots, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. Um, exactly. And I was told, no, Yardley, no, you're, you, can't be, um, you can't be in the crowd of kids or grown-ups unless Lisa Simpson is actually present. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> hey! And they're like, yeah, sorry, you're, the timber of your voice is too specific and it bleeds through and you're not really a blender. Sorry for your luck. Please sit down. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that that's cost you other uh, voice jobs? I don't know that not being able to be... Um, part of the general population of Springfield has cost me other jobs, but I'm pretty sure that being Lisa Simpson and having such a distinct voice has cost me other jobs. I think either producers love it and want to sort of 
capitalize on that because this is me. This is Lisa Simpson. There is a difference. Right. But there is a quality to my voice that's quite recognizable. So if you don't like that, then um, I'm not the I'm not the actor for you. Yeah, but it's it's a gig that's lasted. Well, 32 years now. Yes, listen, who has the last laugh now, right? <laughs> no kidding. I have a question about voices as well. Uh, there is a channel here in Canada that on Sunday afternoon runs a big, long marathon of Simpsons every weekend. I was watching something from season five today. Your voice sounds the same in season five as it does in season, season 30. How is that possible? Because uh, I don't yeah. actually know what I'm doing. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> there was... Um, it is true that when I started out as a, an actor and I got the audition for The Simpsons back in, I think it was 86, I d didn't want to do voiceover. I didn't have a voiceover agent. It had never been part of my plan for world domination. So the fact that I had this voiceover audition was like, eh, whatever, Ugh, fine. And because I'm just an actor who doesn't usually say no, um, and really not back then, I was like, yeah, of course I'll go. And then I got the job and I thought, Okay, great. As long as it doesn't keep me from, you know, becoming this huge movie star and Hardy Hart just goes on to be the best job in the entire world and the job that won't that just won't end. And so but I will say when they told me that Lisa Simpson was eight and I had heard all my life that my voice was really, really young sounding, I thought, well, if she's eight and people tell me I sound like I'm already 10 or 12, then I just I guess I better go up. Because that will sound younger, right? And I just, you know, I really, really don't have the range that my colleagues like Dan Castellaneta and Hank Azaria and even Nancy Cartwright, who doesn't do as many as the men, but she does, you know, Ralph and Kearney and um, Nelson, the bully, as well as Bart. And so, uh, and she studied voiceover, actually. That really was always her dream, which is pretty cool. So, um yeah, you know, you got to dance with the one that brung you. That's what I always say. <laughs> okay, and, and clearly this is obviously for for Zibby the, the the part of the conversation where everybody asks about Lisa Simpson. <laughs> um, my my daughter's twelve, and I didn't let her watch The Simpsons until actually about a month or so ago, and we are now gorging ourselves on it. And of course. <laughs> Lisa is the the brainiac, my daughter, straight A student, interested in STEM. Speak to her directly if you could and tell us what your best advice would be to a young girl trying to make her way in a world very much like a Lisa Simpson character is of the idiots and the fools and the slackers um, who's just trying to, to be the best kid she can be so she'll eventually be the best grown up she can be. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Nice one. You know, I would say that, and I've said this often because I get a lot of people coming up to me. Um, there's a lot of tears. It's really extraordinary that one could have such an impact on complete strangers. And they say, you know, Lisa Simpson got me through this really tough time in my life or she inspired me to do this. Um, I found my voice because of her. It's, it's, it never gets old. And so what I would say to your beautiful 12-year-old daughter is no matter what you do, if you are really exceptional at something in your young lives, let's say it's music or sports, for me it was theater, there will always be people who aren't happy for you, but there are more people who are. And 
it really doesn't matter what any of the people think. It really matters what it means to you. And if those things make you want to leap out of bed in the morning and go do that thing, finish all your homework so you can do that thing that you really, really, that keeps you up at night because you're so excited about it, then your only obligation is to pursue that. And in the hard times, when and if you get bullied or people tell you you're never going to make it, so what? It really, really isn't true, and they're not right about you. Awesome. Thank you for that. And Olivia, I'm sure, will say thank you for that. Zibi, what, what, let's bring it back to you. What's next for the big show? <laughs> for the big show, as in... Small town uh, text, your podcast. The podcast. Okay, yeah. right. <laughs> well, there's lots. I'm always in some show, whether it's the podcast or television. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we're just launching. Um, well, we're going to launch season four, March 15. So we're in the middle of capturing um, those episodes. What our listeners may not know is that we actually travel to every small town um, that the cases are in. So we... You record the episodes in the small towns? Yeah, we go there. We do. Mm -hmm. So we travel. That's why we're not making any money. Our overhead is a little big. <laughs> but yeah, so we're we've been do we've been doing some traveling. We've got some more travel coming up. We're we've got some new interesting um, voices on season four that I'm really excited to feature. We also are welcoming back um, Paul Holes, who's a very famous investigator, famous for being a part of solving the Golden State Killer case. So we have some really neat episodes coming up in season four with him. The Golden yeah. State Killer. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, you want to give some background on that one? Because that's a really, that's a really creepy one. It's insane. Joseph James D'Angelo appeared for the first time as a defendant in a California courtroom today. The 72-year-old former police officer is accused of being the Golden State Killer, responsible for 13 murders and dozens of sexual assaults in the 1970s and 80s. Those crimes were unspeakably violent, so DNA was left behind. But as Kim Brunhuber explains, the match investigators were looking for had to wait for a more modern database to emerge. Cracking a case that had gone cold for more than 40 years was always going to take something new, something special. Over the last decade or so, millions of Canadians and Americans have mailed in samples of their saliva to companies which analyze their DNA and help them trace their family tree. Few users ever suspected their spittle could be used to find criminals. This was an amazing retirement gift for me. Investigator Paul Holes spent more than two decades trying to track down the so-called Golden State Killer. It obviously, his, his criminal career spanned three decades. Uh, it started, he ended up with three monikers. Um, the first one is the Visalia Ransacker, right, Kitty? Yeah. And then um, the East Area Rapist, and then the Golden State Killer, as he made his way from Northern California to Southern California. They couldn't catch him, couldn't catch him. He was absolutely ruthless in his technique, in his intimidation, in his desire and ability to troll his victims even after he had assaulted them. He really is a bad, bad guy. Yeah, he was a prolific uh, serial rapist and then eventually murderer. Um, 
as well as burglar. There were at least 13 murders. There were over 50 rapes. There were over 100 burglaries, all in California, um, Northern California primarily, which is why um, they called him the Golden State Killer. Um, or he was an East Area rapist for a while from 1974 to 1986, I think it was. Um, and so he evaded law enforcement for years and years and years. And it was only just last, I believe it was April that they found him, um, through, uh, DNA, uh, a, a DNA family tree website, genealogy, basically. Jed match, right? It, yes, I believe it was. Uh, I believe that was it. Yeah. GEDmatch then is able to search that profile against the other public profiles that individuals have placed in there and produce literally a, a simple table that indicates how much DNA that person shares with the profile that I uploaded and then gives the username and the email address of the person that is uh, matching. What really has come to the fore in breaking that case according to Paul and the people who worked on it with them, is that this building of genealogy of family trees through DNA has become this unexpected, extraordinary boon for law enforcement, where they've now been able to replicate that. What took them six weeks to build a family tree or two months, some huge amount of time, by the time they did it a third time, it took them two hours. Wow. And so the advancements are extraordinary, and, and it's, it's, been, um, it's been pretty great. And, and actually, speaking of GEDmatch, I believe now they have on their website a paragraph that says, you know these records are public, and you know also by signing this that law enforcement may be using these records to find you or people related to you. So um, they're really trying to be totally above board about it. I just gave that uh, one of those kits to my dad for Christmas, and we just got our results back. Oh, boy. Uh -huh. Any surprises? So, uh, well, I haven't gotten that deep into it because I just got it back the other day. But uh, uh, there are 6,433 people with DNA matches, so I'm going to have to do a little bit of digging. <laughs> wow. That's a big Christmas dinner. <laughs> Yeah, we 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 had a similar sort of situation in, in my family where um, someone had done the whole DNA test routine. Somebody else halfway around the world said, I got an alert that suggests you and I are related. And next thing you know, there's a member of our family we didn't know previously existed. Thanks to. Oh, wow. Were they a serial killer? Not a serial killer. <laughs> thank goodness. At least not that I'm aware of. But I can imagine Paul Holes would have figured it out if they were. <laughs> And, and if, yeah, if that episode that you're going to have them on for doesn't get you all the downloads just for the topic, um, he's he's quite a hunk of hunk of himself, uh, according to the Internet. These these photos here, people are going gaga over him. I think he made the good choice. Oh, yeah, he's got his own hashtag. Or he I don't think he chose it, but there's a hashtag floating out there. Hashtag hot for holes, which is just so terrible on every level. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's if you look up the hashtag, it's there. And listen, we we actually did already in season three air. Uh, we did a, our first live show interview, uh, our live first live show, which happened to be interviewing Paul Holes at a true crime festival in Washington D.C. produced by the brightest young things. Um, so that's actually already out there, and uh, it was an amazing turnout. Everyone was really there to see him. Did, did the ladies <laughs> throw their underpants at him like Tom Jones? 
basically. No, but they did line up in the aisles when we said, we'll take some questions. You, Kitty, I don't think there was a single man in those two, two lines, was there? I, it was an auditorium <laughs> full of women. <laughs> You know, and women truly are going back to sort of, sort of the earlier part of our conversation. Women, by and large, I think they make up seventy to eighty percent of um, the consumers of true crime. That's right. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why do you suppose that is? He has a great theory about that. Yeah, and we. I mean, uh, people speculate all the time. This is a big question now, right? Because of the the numbers are so the ratio is so drastically bigger on the female side. But I think because ninety percent of these crimes that we hear about actually have happen to women. Women are the victims. I mean, it's so rare when it's the other way around. And so, you know, I think we walk around on the planet with um, just a different experience of feeling like potential, <laughs> I hate to say it, but potential victims. And I think we're looking at these stories and trying to find ourselves inside of them, sort of slow things down and imagine, well, what's going through the perpetrator's head? What would I do in that situation? And sort of mine for intel and information to then brace ourselves to kind of, you know, sort of walk through the unknown as a woman because we're usually the targets. So I think that's part of it. I also think that innately we like to, you know, we love to solve a puzzle as human beings. And it's also a safe way to sort of look at and experience these things, um, from a distance, um, you know, to observe people in horrible situations, uh, safely. For a limited time only, Kindred D Designs, uh, hot for whole stickers on sale, two for one or two dollars for one, five for three, <laughs> or eight for five. That's real. Is that real? I'm reading it off the hot for holes hashtag Twitter right now. That's a lot. Yep. Leave it to Alan. We were trying to bring this back to a serious topic, and there we go, back down the sex symbol route. Oh, Alan. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. All the best to you on season four. Thank you so much, Thanks, guys. What a pleasure. Yeah. Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith of Small Town Dicks. Okay, deleting browser history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. So the Grammys this year, the ladies cleaned up. Oh, yeah, they did. Now, the Grammys have had an issue over the past couple of years regarding diversity. What they did this year was they... They stepped up? Well, what they did was they increased the number of nominees per category from five to eight, which made them more inclusive. And it got a lot of people thinking about, okay, we need to have more women recognized, which is exactly what happened. Uh, so, well, my, my reference was last year. Didn't the organizer, uh, imply that w when there was criticism about the lack of women in the 2018 Grammys, that his recommendation was that women step up. And so that was, that was taken quite negatively. Uh, it was the, I think that was Ken Ehrlich, who is the producer of the Grammys. Mm -hmm. And this year they kind of swung all the way over to the other side. So it was all about women. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it was it was very woman heavy, and women took home the most of the major awards. Um, but I here's the weird thing about the Grammy Awards: they are woefully out of step for 2019. The show is programmed musically for young music fans, who are people who don't watch network TV anymore, let alone long-standing award shows, and let alone that, and long 
drawn out tributes to people like Dolly Parton and Diana Ross. I heard Dolly Parton, though, really nailed it. Oh, she did. Again, there's nothing wrong with Dolly Parton. There is nothing wrong with Diana Ross. But again, the Grammys are on CBS, which tends to attract the older end of the TV watching demographic. So the people that were watching last night were mostly those going, where's NCIS? You know, so it's, it's this, or Tom Jones. Exactly. It's this really this is weird disconnect uh, about the Grammys. You know, the Diana Ross thing, you know, having her sing or say happy birthday to me was a little much. Her 75th birthday isn't for another month and a half. Um, rock music was marginalized again. Yeah, there was a lot of rap. Very oh, there successful. was. I mean, in America. And we have to understand that this is the way it is in America. Rap and hip-hop and R&B are the genres that are pushing culture forward. Those are the dominant sounds of, of music these days, no doubt. But we have to understand that that's America. It's not necessarily that way everywhere else in the world. So in Canada, for example, if you break down what people are buying, what people are listening to, rock is still number one by a very healthy margin. So while America's talking about how rock is dead, you know, Canadians are going, well, wait a second. It's not necessarily that case here. But when we watch a thing like the Grammys, we'll go, oh, um, okay, well, maybe, maybe America's right. But that's another story. Childish Gambino made history with This Is America, first rap-based track to win record and song of the year. And he never showed up. Why? Well, because a lot of people don't believe that the Grammys are relevant in any way they they you know okay let's just go through some of the people who did not attend jay-z beyonce um okay i gotta find my list here um rihanna kanye justin bieber Taylor Swift, Kendrick Lamar, Beyonce, Jay-Z, The Weeknd. So there was a tremendous lack. <laughs> it sounds like a list of reasons why to watch, not not to watch. A huge lack of star power. And they were also really dumb to pick a fight with Ariana Grande. She's one of the hottest pop stars in the world right now. And she just released a much anticipated album this past Friday called Thank You Next. The Grammys really needed her because she's so hot. Yet the producer of the Grammys got into some kind of weird fight with her. She wanted to perform her current hit, Seven Rings. Producers wanted her to perform something else. Uh, she said, well, you're stepping on my creative integrity, and then she refused to appear. So, I mean, the whole thing was just dumb. The Grammys shot themselves in the foot with this, and the, you know, I'll give you a couple of other examples. Why was Jennifer Lopez picked to do a Motown tribute? That just seems a bit weird. section where they talk about all the people who passed away over the last year there was no mention of rapper extentacion 
uh, who died in a drive-by last year. Pantera's Vinnie Paul was not mentioned. The Buzzcocks' Pete Shelley was not mentioned. Scott Hutchinson's of Fri- uh, Frightened Rabbit was not mentioned. Neil Young's ex-wife Peggy, who had done all kinds of stuff in the music industry, she wasn't mentioned. And then, at, you know, when they get to Drake, you know, Drake doesn't show up at uh, award shows because he feels he's not respected. But this year, he showed up at the Grammy Awards. Total shock to everybody. And he goes on to talk about the power of music and also why we really shouldn't pay too much attention to award shows. So what happened? The show went to a commercial break halfway through his speech. Man, um, it's like the first time in in Grammy's history where I actually am who I thought I was for a second. So I like that. That's really nice. Um, I definitely did not think I was winning anything. My brother's here. I want to take this um, opportunity while I'm up here to just talk to all the kids that are watching this, that are aspiring to do music, all my peers that make music from their heart, that do things pure and tell the truth. I want to let you know we play in an opinion-based sport, uh, not a factual-based sport. So it's not the NBA where at the end of the year you're holding a trophy because you made the right decisions or won the games. This is a this is a business where sometimes you know it um it's up to a bunch of people that might not understand you know what a mixed race kid from Canada has to say or uh or 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 a fly or a fly Spanish girl from New York or anybody else or a brother from Houston right there my brother Travis but look the point is you've already won if you have people who are singing your songs word for word if you're a hero in your hometown if look. Look, if there's people who have regular jobs who are coming out in the rain, in the snow, spending their hard-earned money to buy tickets to come to your shows, you don't need this right here. I promise you. You already won. But next, a special Grammy performance by Diana Ross. The producers say that, no, 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 we thought he was finished. But come on. It just, the Grammys... You know, they're just useless. They need to be rebooted and reimagined entirely. It's not going to happen for next year because, again, this is a TV show first and about music second. Well, you've just given me yet another reason not to care. Yes, exactly. Do not care. I would far rather watch the Junos and I would far rather watch the Brit Awards than the Grammys. The Grammys are bloated and dumb. (laughs) Tell me how you really feel. (laughs) There you go. Time now for Geeks and Beats Update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. It's going to be like Christmas this week for me. <laughs> Why is that? We are getting delivered to Studio 3B East two brand new studio microphones. Uh huh. And a pair of Sennheiser G4 wireless microphones. Uh, okay. So you and I could do all of those live on location shows with the wireless microphones and the wandering around and the not having to rent or worry about anything. And how did you acquire this uh, gear? Well, my new Big Shot documentary series (laughs) also has a podcast. Right. And so we have a certain amount of money allocated for the production. And I, being the executive producer, Big Shot, said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to earmark some of that money to buy gear for the future Rhythmic podcast, which ever so conveniently happens to live in the same studio as Geeks and Beats. Oh, imagine that. (laughs) Okay. Uh... So there, there is an accounting thing here because you have to look after these things in terms of capital expenditure and depreciation. Yes, I do. So um, 
just be careful. Yes, it, it is now all part of this big shot new life I've got. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? We're, we're at some point going to need this gear again and again and again. In my career, I'm going to need it again and again and again. And sure enough, we've got the Minister of Innovation coming down to the C.D. Howe Institute, and I'm going to be interviewing him. So I got the gear in time to be able to do that as well. Oh, by the way, did I tell you? The CD How Think Tank has launched a podcast with yours truly. No. Yes. See, listen, you've, you've, you've reinvented yourself. Just like I said you would. See? I'm trying. Yeah, you're doing well. well worst case scenario, we got a lot of really high quality. Uh, well, out of it. <laughs> well, you know, when I uh, went on my first walkabout from uh, my current and yet previous employer, um, I managed to do more or less the same thing. Um, you set up a studio for me in the house. Uh, therefore I would like to have, uh, ownership of all the gear that you left behind. And they said, fine. So that basically allowed me to continue to do what I was doing, uh, without having to make the big investment. Oh, well, lucky you. Yes. We have a substantial absence in the co-producer office as of late. Why? Why? What have we done? Well, clearly not enough to attract co-producers willing to shell out 25 bucks to be the co-producer on the show and support the big program. As the co-producer, you can even suggest topics. We will put your name on the album art so you can print it off, frame it, and hang it in your parents' basement. And you can make it a LinkedIn profile entry as well. We actually have Geeks and Beats as a formal company set up. So you can put this on your resume that you co-produce the world's most popular podcast. Yeah, and if anybody calls for a reference, we'll say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll give out the number. Not a problem. No. Now, if you don't want to shell out 25 bucks, but you still want to support the show, you can be a member of the world's worst intern program. And what makes it the world's worst is you work for us. You have to pay us to work for us. You don't do any actual work. And all we do is say thank you to random collections of patrons. We're doing this via Patreon, by the way. Which uh, is not pledge music. <laughs> Let's just be very clear, clear about yeah. that. Yeah, not everybody's a fan of Patreon, though. Um, what it does is it dings your credit card when we publish a new episode. Um, some people are, are suggesting that there are alternative ways to go about this as well. And so we've set up, if you go to geeksandbeats.com and click on the support the show link, you can just set up a recurring PayPal payment, oh. as Sean Sosnowski has done. Every month, we get 12 bucks sent from his PayPal account directly into ours as a means of keeping us uh, on the air, which, of course, as you know, particularly since we've come back from the Consumer Electronics Show in January, we've got bills. Uh, we're operating <laughs> in a deficit situation, yes. What blows me away is that small-town dicks with, you know, Lisa Simpson isn't making any money. What hope in hell do we have of turning this into our day jobs? Yeah, I know. We, well, it's never going to happen. We're, we're doing this basically as a community service and as uh, professional development. <laughs> <laughs> community service. Are we really serving the community with this podcast? I, I don't know. <laughs> I would like to think so. The people at the dog park seem, seem to think so. Yeah, like I said, we got to get you one of those uh, portable credit card readers so that you can just swipe it on your iPhone for all those fans you meet at the dog park. <laughs> that would make it easy, wouldn't it? Subscribe to all new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live every Wednesday at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth.
The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.